Hello and welcome to the Haaretz Podcast. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer in Tel Aviv. The shock of the October 7th attacks and the four-month-long war in Gaza and on Israel's northern border have clearly reshuffled the cards when it comes to Israeli politics. Poll after poll has shown that if elections were held now, our Knesset and the Prime Minister's office would look very different than they do today. And the war has not only affected the political map in Israel. Obviously, it will affect the future of who rules the Palestinians in Gaza, as well as the West Bank, and increasingly as fierce debate over the war and Biden administration policy towards Israel remains in the headlines in the United States as the November 2024 election looms, it looks like what happens in Israel and Gaza will also affect who occupies the White House, Senate and House of Representatives. Few analysts are able to clearly examine and explain what is going on politically in all of these arenas. One of them is Haaretz columnist Dr. Dalia Shenlin, and we were lucky enough to have her on the podcast to read these various political maps and share her insights. My conversation with Dalia coming up. Dr. Dalia Shenlin is first and foremost a prolific and brilliant columnist at Haaretz. She's co-host of our elections podcast in election season. We'll also concede that she does some other things, too. She's a public opinions expert. She's a strategic consultant with over 20 years of experience. She's advised nine national campaigns in Israel and also in 15 other countries. She conducts research, policy analysis, writes extensively in other publications as well, and she is a fellow at the Century Foundation. Dalia, most importantly, is the author of The Crooked Timber of Democracy in Israel, Promise Unfulfilled, which was published earlier this year. Dahlia, how are you holding up these days? It's tough, but thank you for that kind introduction. And I'm sorry to have to admit that I write for anybody else other than Haaretz. It's okay. It's okay. We forgive you. So ambitiously, I would like in our conversation to make full use of your expertise in all arenas to talk about Israeli politics, U.S. politics, Palestinian politics, maybe touch on world trends and predict the future of Israeli democracy. How's that? A characterization of everything. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So let's start with Israeli politics. I want to start with the question that we here get the most on any of our public forums, on the podcast, webinars, etc. Poll after poll is showing that since the beginning of the war, Israelis are fed up with Benjamin Netanyahu. We have billboards on every highway telling him to go away. There are demonstrations now calling for new elections, most recently this week pumped up by the Kaplan force, which was behind the demonstrations opposing the judicial overhaul. But Netanyahu is behaving as if he isn't going anywhere and is busy labeling anyone who wants new elections as being basically a traitor who's playing into Hamas hands because they want us divided and we should stay unified. Do you see any scenario where Israel will be free of Netanyahu in the short term or will the reality of our politics, he controls the Likud, his coalition has 64 seats in a solid coalition in the Knesset, aren't these calls and campaigns a bit of a waste of energy? I don't know if they're a waste of energy because the citizens of any country have a right to express what they think about the political level. But I do not see any institutional or legal mechanism by which you can translate street protests 
into early elections. That has to come from within inside the political system. It has happened before, of course, after wars, that there have been massive protests. And certainly going back to 1973, we saw a huge protest that led to the resignation of the prime minister. But I dare say this is a different kind of prime minister. He doesn't have a sense of responsibility or shame. I don't think he believes he is responsible. And I do think he believes that anybody who's not with him is some sort of a traitor. And now, it sounds quite extreme the way you've described his response. But actually, in so many ways, Netanyahu is behaving in character. This is who he has been. He has made you know kind of an art form of his political persona of um, calling on the Israeli public to be united, uh, but also dividing them by targeting internal enemies and portraying anybody who's not united as in under his rubric as somehow against the state of Israel. And so he just is doing that in a more exaggerated fashion in wartime, but it's very much in character with who he's always been. In terms of whether we will ever be free of him in the short term, I would say the closer elections are, the more elections are held in the short term, the likelier the results are to reflect current survey research. And current survey research has been extremely consistent since October 7th. Even before October 7th, from the beginning of the judicial attempted judicial overhaul and the protests against it throughout 2023, the government had lost its 64-seat majority in survey research. All surveys throughout the year showed the government getting somewhere between 52 and 55 seats, including the last surveys you know, in September of 2023. And since October 7th, the surveys have all showed that the original governing coalition would get between 42 and 48 seats. And so I would say if elections are held in the short term... The original government would probably lose, but we don't know when elections were held because of the things I said in the beginning. All of the protests on the street can't force elections to happen if they don't manage to convince either those defectors from within the Likud or converge with some sort of other internal coalition crisis. And, and that's unpredictable. And we might not even actually see elections for another year, by which time the polls could be rather different. Have you found that the focus on Netanyahu can be a bit misleading Uh, when reading the polls or interpreting the polls. I found, especially for a lot of people abroad, they think that the groundswell of opposition to Netanyahu means that Israelis uh, oppose him politically, oppose his stances on paper, or oppose the way that he's prosecuting the war. Is it a misinterpretation of the polls to say that rejection of Netanyahu means some sort of swing to the left or a rejection of the politics that he represents? And presumably, do we assume that Israel after October 7th is going to be more right-wing than Israel before October 7th? And how do we see a non-Netanyahu yet right-wing Israel when you look at the polls? Well, this is a a sort of amalgamated but very interrelated question. And I actually quite like the question about Netanyahu because, yes, I think it is very misleading to look at Netanyahu as the start and end of all of Israel's current problems. And frankly, he's not the sole reason for many of Israel's longer-term problems. In fact, I think we give Netanyahu a huge amount of credit for completely shaping or reshaping Israeli society and politics, but in many ways his policies have been a continuity to many of the policies before. And let's just start with the big picture. I know we're going to move quickly to the current events, but on the level of the big picture, people often blame him or credit him, depending on which side you're coming from, for killing the two-state solution, for you know destroying the peace process. But in fact, it's been All governments of Israel since 1967 that have either established or deepened or expanded Israel's presence and hold over the occupied territories with, you know, a couple of exceptions being the Oslo Agreement and the disengagement. But going around those things, every government of Israel has deepened, has expanded settlements and 
manage not to or or fail to sign an agreement uh, for permanent status, you know, arrangement with the Palestinians. I'm not saying the Palestinians are blameless either, but Netanyahu is, you know, continuing along an illustrious trend of Israel expanding and deepening its hold over the Palestinian territories and leaving the conflict unresolved. So I think the, on the big picture uh, that he, he does represent continuity. And for that reason, it is a mistake to credit him with certainly he's not the only person to have failed with relation to the conflict and on many bigger issues, for example, Israeli democracy itself. And we can talk about this when we get to the book, but the foundations of Israeli democracy were partial and weak long before Netanyahu. He capitalized on it. He deepened it. But it certainly, he didn't start it. And by the same logic, when Israelis are rejecting Netanyahu, that doesn't mean that they are thereby embracing, for example, left-wing views or that they have uh, you know, committed themselves to ending the war or reaching a final status agreement with the Palestinians based on two states, or even truly getting to the bottom of what it would mean to really strengthen Israeli democracy. It simply means when they protest Netanyahu, they think he's been in power too long. They think he is not making decisions based on considerations that of, of what's you know, really for the good of the people or based on security considerations. They think he is tainted by his corruption cases. And they think that he is behaving like a megalomaniac. But it doesn't necessarily mean they're you know, stepping back and seeing the big picture of the issues need, Israel needs to resolve. And certainly based on current polling, it does not mean that Israelis support an end to the war. And even support for a ceasefire is highly qualified, usually limited to the framework of a hostage release deal and for a limited amount of time, and even then very politically divided. Um, however, the kinds of policies that you're asking about, support for a ceasefire, support for a hostage release deal, maybe de-escalating the war, are definitely supported more by people who voted for the, the opposition parties or the original opposition parties, I should say, before uh, the, you know, the, the war cabinet was established uh, and added the National Unity Party. And we see a very clear political divide. So there's less support for those kinds of policies, by which I mean, again, some sort of a temporary ceasefire, hostage release deal, or some sort of de-escalation, much less support for that among the parties of the coalition. So you talk about the happy hawks and yes, I do. distinguish them from the ideological right. And the polls are showing the happy hawks, I guess, personified by Benny Gantz and his National uh, Unity Party soaring in the polls, but also being strengthened are the Ben Gvir's, uh, uh, Smotrich's, um, uh, a wing. So I guess the question is, and it's hard to predict and look ahead to these things, can the happy hawks um, build a coalition without making the same kind of concessions to the hard ideological right that Netanyahu had to make in order to get and stay in power? Let me clarify a couple of things about who I mean when I talk about the happy hawks, <laughs> by which I mean people who are essentially right wing, but primarily because they believe in strong military action and other pragmatic uh, considerations that reflect their conclusions about what's going on in society rather than being driven fundamentally by a religious, you know, divinely inspired messianic vision that is a very extreme version of, you know, their interpretations of Jewish, uh, you know, texts. And that's how I characterize people like Ben Gvir and Smotrich. So when I say, you know, the sort of hawkish right, what I really mean is, you might also call it more forgivingly the pragmatic right. People who are coming to the conclusion that you need very strong military policies, but based on 
uh, a reading of reality that you or I could at least agree on, on, on the reading of reality, even if we come to different conclusions. Um, and that camp goes way beyond Benny Gantz. I would say it includes right now for the purposes, I mean, during, certainly during the time of the war, I would say it includes a portion of Likud voters, possibly those Likud voters who voted for Likud in 2022, but are no longer. Remember, Likud has lost 40 to 50 percent of its support in current polling. Those are the kinds of people who would be included, uh, as well as mostly people in the Israeli center and even part of people who are self-defined left, because right now there's very, very consensus support for pretty much everything to do with the war, as we see it in surveys among the Jewish public. I should qualify because, of course, the Arab or Palestinian citizens of Israel have almost the opposite attitudes towards the war. Um, I want to also correct a perception among you know many people that Israeli society is, is is sort of moving in an unlimited, unrestrained way as far to the right as it can possibly get. It's not quite the case. What we see in surveys is that people are converging around Benny Gantz's National Unity Party, and he is getting far and above, more you know, uh, well above any other party. He's polling between 38 and 40 seats. Likud is coming in second at around 18 seats. Now, Ben Gvir and Smotrich, despite the fact that people's attitudes are very hard line with relation to supporting the war, again, I have to distinguish among the Jewish Israeli population rather than the Palestinian citizens of Israel. But despite the fact that at, at present in my surveys, we have between 64 and 68 percent who self-identify as right-wing. They're not necessarily flooding to the extreme right. In fact, in very few surveys have we seen Smotrich and Ben Gvir, that is the Religious Zionism Party and the Jewish Power or Otsma Yehudit Party, are in, in almost, I mean, I think I only know about one survey where they've actually surpassed their vote share in 2022, which they had 14 seats they won 14 seats in that in that election. I should also remind people that that actually means 10.83 percent of the vote. So it's certainly not a huge portion, more than many people would like. But uh, in most surveys throughout 2023 and since October 7th, they have not been able to reach to 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 come close to that vote. In fact, in many of those surveys. Religious Zionism, Smotrich's party, is going below the electoral threshold. These are tiny surveys, small samples, but still. And so Ben Gvir alone does seem to be doing better, but he's really just taking the votes of people who already were voting for one of those two parties, which ran together as a combined list or as, a, as an amalgamated list uh, in 2022. And so in most surveys, they're still only getting between 10 and 12 uh, or, you know, at points a little bit lower. Uh, but they're, it's true that over the last few weeks, there seems to be some rise for Ben Gvir at the expense of Smotrich. And if by chance in some survey, Smotrich does pass the threshold and gets four seats, uh, well, that means that there have been a few surveys where combined they have gotten 14 seats and even one survey where they've gotten 15 seats. Uh, but it's I would say it makes sense because we do think people are going to be moving to the right. I certainly have made that analysis based on historical trends, such as what happened after the Second Intifada and other phases of violence, uh, escalation, especially when it involves violence against civilians. We can expect to see Israelis moving further to the right. But so far, what we really see is that the center of political gravity has moved to what you could call the happy hawks, the hawkish right, the militant or the military or pragmatic right wing. Well, when you crunch the numbers again with the current polls and if the election was being held tomorrow or in three months or however, can you see any kind of path for uh, the happy hawks for the centrist whatever uh, thing that you see coming together with the weekend Netanyahu do you see how they could put together a coalition because they would have to get together either with the far right either with the ultra orthodox Arab Israelis do they have a path to a majority 
Well, of course, because the opposition parties from the original opposition, again, before Benny Gantz's party joined the war coalition, Mm -hmm. they're getting between 69 and 71 seats. So they easily have a majority. It depends on which parties go in. And that's without the ultra-Orthodox. Okay. So, you know, when when all... But with Ram, with with an Arab party. Yeah. But I mean, Ram is only five seats. I mean, if you have, if you're polling regularly, as all those opposition parties together are getting between 69 and 71 seats, they can afford to drop five. So they might not have, they might have, they might take Ram, but not, you know, Khadash, Ta'al, which is the more likely option. Um, and so there's plenty of, there's, there's numerous pathways. And also, I think that it might want to keep our eyes on some of the parties of the original coalition. For example, I'm keeping my eye on Shas. Why am I keeping my eye on Shas? Because... Because Derry's not very happy with Bibi. Because Derry's not very happy with Bibi. I'm glad I'm not the only one who's noticed it. I mean, he's come out in, in numerous times saying things that break just a little bit from Bibi's line. It seems almost like, you know, kids in kindergarten who were best friends for, for like so many years. And then, you know, one member of the club dissed the other and made a new best friend. And that's Netanyahu, who used to be so tight with Arya Derry. They were like inseparable. Arya Derry was incredibly, you know, incredibly loyal political ally and stuck through Netanyahu, stuck with Netanyahu through so much. And now Netanyahu seems to be catering, pandering even, to either Ben Gvir or Smotrich on any given day. And we're recording this at the time at a time when it seems like Netanyahu has basically thrown his security chiefs under the bus when it comes to what will happen in terms of uh, um, whether which Muslims will be allowed to pray at the temp- at, um, at, at uh, the Al-Aqsa compound during Ramadan. And instead, he's choosing what seems to be an insanely inflammatory policy dictated, I can't, I don't know how else to put it, by Ben Gvir. Right. And that's the kind of thing that I think may be feeding into Aryeh Derry making some rather sort of interesting statements that have just broken a little bit, taking more moderate positions, you know, kind of like marching to his own beat um, with relation to Netanyahu. And, you know, as we know, the ultra-Orthodox parties have you know, overriding interests in being part of an Israeli government so that they can try to secure budgets for their very, you know, limited sectoral populations. And I wouldn't be surprised if that kind of thing is in play after the next elections as well. But as I said, the original opposition parties are, are have pretty, you know, such a strong majority in surveys now that they would have plenty of room for negotiation, except that I have to qualify because that is now. And those surveys have been very consistent. If elections were held in three months, I expect the results to look like the trends I just described, but they will not be held in three Which months. Which is why, shocker, it appears that Netanyahu is trying to delay elections for as it long as possible. It does appear like that. And I'm glad you put it like that because I keep getting asked if Netanyahu is delaying for the reason that he wants his government to remain in power. It would be very easy for me to say, absolutely, yes, he's the most cynical politician on the planet, but I don't know what's going on in his head. I'm not a brain surgeon. Uh, I'm not a neurosurgeon. I'm not a psychologist. You know, I can't open his head up and look inside. And I think that the bigger problem for me is that he certainly has the appearance to the public of making his politi- his decisions with the wo- for the war based on his political considerations. And that is a real injury to the legitimacy of any leader. So from geeking out on Israeli politics, let's turn to American politics and geek out on those. Um, A recent New York Times Siena poll found that among Democrats, about 55 percent approve of Biden's handling of the war, while 27 percent disapprove. But a majority of these Democrats identify as progressive. And you've written that Biden is kind of in a tight bind because he's putting off progressive voters, is based in the Democratic Party with his support for Israel in the war and his policies towards Israel. And those who would praise him to the skies for how he's handling Israel are the type of voters who aren't going to like him 
for other partisan reasons. So it's kind of a lose-lose situation for Biden politically. Is that pretty much your take? And how do you see that affecting him as he moves closer to November to the election? Well, there are a couple of things at play, uh, as you point out, the, you know, the progressive wing of Democratic voters and also we should say the progressive wing of sort of the policy community, people who are very savvy and can get their voices out on, on either side. Um, on the, Demo- you know, the, the progressive side of the Democratic Party is very unhappy because Biden has communicated you know, this enormous bear hug and, and by all accounts, it comes from a very genuine emotional place of commitment to Israel uh, from Biden. Uh, and it has resulted in Israel perceiving it as a blank check to do anything it wants. And not just a perception. This is a reality. Biden has been incredibly supportive uh, and you know, essentially has refused to call for something like a permanent ceasefire up, up until now, even mm-hmm. though America has recently mm-hmm. just proposed this UN Security Council resolution mentioning a ceasefire. But it's temporary and it's in the context of hostage release, which is fine, but it's up until now, there has been very much, you know, supportive policy on Israel. And that is competing with the reality that America is first and foremost completely riven by partisan by the partisan divide. And so, you know, the numbers that you read uh, certainly convey that a majority of Democratic voters still support Biden. And that means not that they love his policy on Israel, but they may not know the ins and outs of his policy. Remember, Americans think about other things, yeah. not just the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the war in Gaza. I mean, that's what we're used to, but it just seems like there's a change there because we see these, you know, progressive left in the streets yelling against Biden and against his policies. And we see, uh, I would say, influential voices, you know, policy wonks, as you put it, uh, from the Republican side or certainly from what might be called the equivalent of the happy hawk side. I'm looking at you, uh, Foundation for Defense of Democracy, (laughs) who basically are mostly supportive of what Biden has done so far because they see him supporting Israel's very, very powerful military reaction and America also taking some military action. In the and region. we see our likely Republican candidate, Donald Trump, appealing to isolationism by saying we shouldn't give Israel any aid. It should all be alone. So, you know, will yeah. that change how right wing and left wing Israelis look at the elections in 2024 from the traditional, the Republicans are good for Israel and the Democrats are bad for Israel. It might change. I'm not sure how closely Israelis are paying attention to to those dynamics just now, but certainly among Americans, there may, I think there is some mixing, mixing around of those issues, but I still think that that has to be, we have to understand that that is balanced by a very powerful partisan divide. So that even if let's say in a different you know, era, Biden would have gotten 80% of Democrats who support his policy on Israel if it was something less controversial. So now it's down to, you know, 55%, according to that survey uh, that you mentioned, but it will still be a majority among Democrats and a minority among Republicans, even if, you know, uh, more influential Republican figures are basically supportive of the support of the war, because in general, Republican voters are against Biden no matter what he does. And so both of those things are at play. In our last podcast, I spoke to Ben Samuels, our Washington correspondent, and he said this dream that the Biden White House and the State Department has of pulling off this hat trick of hostage release and ceasefire and a grand uh, Saudi-Israel normalization, you know, big package tied up with a bow that they don't believe this is pie in the sky. They think this is actually achievable and that is going to somehow move Biden forward, you know, as a grand uh, foreign policy master towards the 2024 elections. Do you see this as at all based in reality in terms of how it's going to help him in the race? Uh, I think there are two questions there. Do I see that it can happen (laughs) before the elections? uh, And do I think it will help him? And I think those are like not we can't take either of those for granted. And I also wanted to point out that 
what we have seen over the last couple of weeks is a uh, rather sort of frenetic energy coming from the administration to do things that would... That How many he, times I think has he Blinken hopes. been here? Yeah, no, but I mean, what I'm saying in particular <laughs> yeah. is the energy is around, specifically around new initiatives that might satisfy the more progressive wing and seems to be either partly directed at them and maybe partly coming from, you know, genuine reasoning of the American government that it's time mm-hmm. to try to rein in Israel. And I think we've seen that in the sense of uh, looking at the the executive order that placed sanctions on a number of settlers and uh, the idea of uh, America supporting a Palestinian state, including recognition, uh, certainly in the context of this big grand deal in the Middle East, and also the UN Security Council draft resolution that we're seeing over the last couple of days. So in, in various ways, I think that America, that the administration is trying to take into it. Plus, we also heard about uh, the National Security Council uh, uh member who was meeting with progressives and expressed some sort of regret. And so, you know, we we see sort of gestures coming out of the administration acknowledging that, and in a way, maybe that's a healthy dynamic, right? Because the administration is doing what it thinks it should have been doing up until now. It's also listening to its constituents at home and trying to let that play into its foreign policy. Um, whether America can pull off this grand deal. I think it is, uh, from my analysis, from my reading of Middle East dynamics and, you know, conversations that I've had with, um, you know, Middle East analysts from different countries, the relevant countries, it seems like it's still quite a long shot. There's a long way to go. Of course, nothing is impossible. And there are various interests in of the different parties. But I, I really hear very convincing competing views about why the Saudis might want to move ahead with this now, or why, the, why it would be in the Saudi interest to wait for the elections and not to feel rushed to move ahead because maybe they'll wait and maybe Trump will get elected and maybe they can get more favorable conditions. And so there's all sorts of, uh, I think, you know, legitimate considerations for why this, you know, there, there could be progress on this before the elections or that there's a lot of reasons why it might there might not be progress. And, and, and I think that we have to take both of those scenarios into account. On the other hand, you know, the second question of will it help Biden in the elections? Certainly, I think if he's able to pull off the, you know, all the aspects of this grandiose deal that have to fall into place, normalization between Israel and Saudi Arabia, uh, which would be grounded in some sort of uh, a relationship that America and Saudi Arabia can agree on, because, of course, what Saudi Arabia wants to get out of this is largely an American defense commitment uh, and approval for its civilian nuclear energy exactly, program. These are yeah. very controversial things, but all of those things would have to fall into place. And there would have to be some sort of commitment uh, that America will help push forward a two-state solution. Israel would have to somehow commit to something. Uh, I don't think the Saudis are willing to just take rhetorical, you know, fluffy statements anymore. The price has gone up with relation to Israel's commitment to a And this government state. isn't able to provide this even fluffy statements. Yeah, not at all. And so, I, th- you know, again, there's so many th- hurdles to get through. But if all that were to happen, of course, it would look like a win for Biden. It would certainly help him. It would, lo- it would make it look like he is competent and creative on the foreign policy stage and able to bring, you know, very... Uh, you know, uh, a- actors together who are who have very difficult, uh, you know, competing interests, and that would certainly be a coup. I mean, having said that, I don't think it would overcome the partisan divide in America. It may overcome the partisan divide in terms of you'd probably get majorities in polls who say, "Oh, I think that's a good thing." But does that mean that Republicans are going to change their mind and vote for him? I doubt it. America, I mean, you know, it's a different conversation, but American voters are so, so entrenched in their partisan camps, except for the independents, of course, that I think they're, you know, we know this from survey research, there's a you know, majority, at least two thirds of Republican voters who are so deeply invested in how they view Donald Trump, their understanding of what he stands for, that I don't think, I mean, you, it would mean changing their entire identity and worldview to try to get them to vote for Biden. They've demonized 
him and Democrats in general. And, you know, the, and I, I think there's, I mean, I don't want to make a moral equivalency because I think that uh, most Democrats are basing their consideration that, that determine their vote on very different things from specifically Trump-supporting Republicans, but they're very entrenched in their position as well. Quick pivot to Palestinians and Palestinian politics. Uh, Dalia, you just uh, co-wrote with Mahmoud Jabari, um, basically summing up or, or asserting that uh, for Palestinians, the concept of governance itself is in shambles, that they've been divided for so many years between the Fatah and the Hamas, um, both of whom are looked at as, you know, corrupt, authoritarian, no freedom. They've, I mean, basically, when was the last time that any Palestinian really went to the polls in a free and fair election, uh, if ever? Um, so in this atmosphere, is there any real way to gauge What's happening in the various Palestinian populations in the West Bank and in Gaza? Are the polls that we see um, reliable? And most of the ones that we do see say that if they were to vote, support for Hamas will dwarf any possible support for the Palestinian Authority, which makes the whole, you know, Biden dream of the Palestinian Authority taking a major role in ruling Gaza problematic. I mean, does that match up with what you've seen? Do you feel like you can have some sort of picture in your mind of where the Palestinian people stand in terms of who they want for leaders? Well, like anybody, Palestinians are not a monolith. And I think that in any society, I mean, I'm a big believer. I was trained also to do quantitative and qualitative research in order to supplement what we know from the numbers with how people explain it and what they think about it, how they feel about these that's things. That's why we're asking you. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so that's that's the case in, in any country, including countries that are, you know, as, as democratic as you can get and that are not at war. Now, the Palestinians are not as democratic as you can get. Even Israel's not. And we're at war. And that makes it harder, I would say, to depend solely on survey research, which is why I try to talk with a lot of people. And I think what you hear is that there are things that you can't really detect from surveys. And we don't have a lot of survey research. We have the, I, you know, the most detailed, incredible survey, I'm a little bit biased because this is my ongoing research partner. The survey is conducted by Palestinian Center for Policy and Survey Research, Dr. Khalil Shikaki and his team. And they did that survey uh, during the one-week ceasefire at the end of November. Now, on the one hand, you know, I think those results are as credible as you can be. They tested the regular samples in the West Bank. They tried to make allowances to, to compensate for the difficulties of polling in Gaza by I mean, revamping where they found their sample of respondents in Gaza. And the results are not surprising. I mean, every time there's an escalation with Israel support, you know, I mean, I mean, an Israel Hamas escalation since 2000, late 2008, uh, to the present support for Hamas goes up because Hamas is seen as the only actor who's really challenging Israel at a time when from the Palestinian perspective, uh, what Fatah has stood for, and I should say Palestinians don't vote for the Palestinian Authority, they vote for parties. And Fatah, the dominant party in the Palestinian Authority has made its brand that it advances the Palestinian national cause through diplomacy. Uh, never mind that Netanyahu and has convinced Israelis, but he himself is constantly accusing uh, Mahmoud Abbas and the Palestinian Authority and Fatah of supporting terror and incitement. But the way the Palestinians see it, that they stand for diplomacy. Uh, Hamas stands for militancy. Diplomacy has achieved nothing. And at least the military strategy manages to shake Israel on some level. So every time there's an escalation, every war in Gaza sees some sort of a rise for Hamas in surveys. Usually within a few months, it goes back down. Now that there's a huge gap, the two have been running pretty close for most of you know the last 10 years, I would say. And so what we saw after this war began was a very similar pattern. You know, spike in support for Hamas. I don't like 
it. Nobody likes it. I mean, at least, you know, not in Israeli circles. Um, but what I also find interesting is that a lot of Palestinians don't like it either. And when I say they don't like it, uh, there are Palestinians who are not happy about the poll itself. Uh, and I've looked at, th- at other polling as well that, you know, that kind of comes up with different approach. And even within the poll, even within this very detailed poll that PSR did, the Center for Policy and Survey Research, what you see are some very interesting dynamics if you go deeper. Enormous gaps between support for Hamas and Fatah between the West Bank and Gaza. Uh, and on the less typical questions regarding elections, uh, you know, everybody knows about the election questions. And sometimes I think that people fall into a kind of inertia about how they answer them. But when PSR asked an unusual question, never asked before because we were never in this situation before, which was, who do you want to govern Gaza after this war? We saw almost a 40-point gap uh, with about three quarters, roughly, in the West Bank who said Hamas, you know, because they were kind of rah-rah, they managed to challenge Israel, but they're not living with the consequences. Mm -hmm. And in Gaza, it was only 38%, a minority. Uh Now, also, there are distinctions between the questions about uh, support for a candidate for president or the party. And Hamas is not doing as well as one might think. In other words, there was a a significant rise in support for Hamas as a party in the West Bank, but such a small rise in support in Gaza that it actually doesn't even count. It's within the margin of error. So there are a number of mitigating factors here that I think, you know, we have to take into account as well as the qualitative factor. And the qualitative factor is that, you know, from all the Palestinians I speak to, especially if they're from Gaza, uh, there are very, very troubled uh, views of Hamas. People are, you know, extreme suffering tremendously. Of course, they blame Israel first, but many are also uh, angry at Hamas. I've heard people say, "Oh, you know, in Gaza." I mean, these are people whose families are in Gaza, um, or who are from Gaza. You know, if you were to do a poll today, everybody would kick Hamas out. I mean, I'm not saying those are the reality. I'm saying all of those are in the mix. And I think that we're going to be seeing shifting attitudes over time. Again, that that the most the detailed survey that I mentioned was conducted a while ago. Now it was you know, late November, so we don't know what's happened between December, January, and February. But we do know the situation has gotten exponentially worse. Um, we've seen tiny little demonstrations. We see people being more outspoken online. Uh, sometimes in English, sometimes in Arabic, sometimes those who are outside of Gaza, sometimes from those who are in Gaza, and so. Uh, I think that we have to, you know, not presume what would happen by the time of the next Palestinian elections, which, like Israel, we don't know when they're going to be. And I did say that Palestinian governance is in shambles, largely because of legitimacy, lack of legitimacy, largely because of very, very overwhelming perceptions of corruption and authoritarianism. And I think that from the Palestinians I speak to who are really doing the hard thinking about how to rehabilitate something like legitimate accountable, representative Palestinian governance. They all want elections. Nobody I know wants them tomorrow. They want to set the conditions up first and maybe have them in a year. I heard some one person say three years. I personally would think maybe sooner than three years, but probably not before one year if it was me. But I think that by that time, you know, we might see different circumstances and certainly different attitudinal trends. Your book, Dahlia. My book. Crooked Timber. Had the luck or the misfortune to be published what? Weeks before yeah, the just October 7th, yeah, just a couple of weeks, you were just about to go out and talk all about the future of democracy and, uh, you know, the, the, the news cycles all of a sudden uh, ate that opportunity. You wrote your book out of deep concern for Israeli democracy and what you saw as relentless attacks on the rule of law. And you wrote it even before the judicial overhaul and the pushback and the eruption and attacks on institutions in Israel. So the question of 
institutions and belief in them is even more damaged after October 7th, even the one most revered by Israelis, the Israel Defense Forces. Um, you hear over and over and over again um, after October 7th, people, you know, these tales of heroism and the, the, the society uh, coming together that we're a wonderful people with terrible government, terrible in institutions or ones that have failed us uh, at least. Um, having published your book and having focused so much on uh, on on democracy, you know how do you how do you view the effect of what Israel is going through now in the short term versus these long term trends in history that you examined so well in your book? Yeah, thank you for the question. Uh, maybe I'll start with what happened in twenty twenty three before I get to the war, which is that you know throughout. I mean, I basically finished the first full draft of my book. I'm not. I did. A, it was a rough draft, but I finished. <laughs> you know, the fir first full draft. Uh, just uh, shortly, about two weeks before the elections in November 2022. So I didn't know what was going to happen in 2023. I didn't know that they were going to, you know, that the new government was within, within days was going to announce a plan for a radical, you know, essentially takeover of the Israeli judiciary by the executive branch. I didn't know that it was going to be met with a huge sweeping protest of the scale that it that it did. Um, some of these things were, you know, I predicted in a, in a minimal way, but I don't think I could ever have known exactly how they would have played out. Having said that, I think that the reason I wrote the book was, yes, because I saw long-term assaults, you know, starting from the Israeli judiciary, but I decided that to understand that, you had to really look at uh, what was the nature of democratic values, institutions, practice on the ground. First, I thought you have to go back 10 years. Then I thought you had to go back 30 years. Then I realized you had to go back to the beginning of statehood. And then I realized you have to go back to early Zionism. <laughs> so I went all the way back. But all, all, all to say that I think that if you really look at this historical analysis, some sort of crisis... I mean, real crisis leading to, you know, potentially dysfunction was inevitable because there were too many. I mean, every democracy has contradictions and stress and tension between values that might seem irreconcilable. But you have political institutions that are there to have those debates and contain them from becoming violent. Um, and I think in Israel, our particular forms of contradictions or what I consider to be cracked or missing pillars of democracy were just deeper. If you really are striving to have a democratic society, it was irreconcilable with Israel's practices on the ground pretty much throughout its history in different ways. And so I think we were leading to a crisis. So what happened in 2023, again, without, I, I don't want to pretend that I could have predicted exactly how it played out. But to me, I didn't have to revise any of my historical analysis when I saw it was going on through 2023, because it fulfilled what I saw as the unfulfilled promise of democracy leading right. to a crisis between institutions and Israelis realizing that they had very a very, very weak basis for the democracy they took for granted. And that if they really committed themselves to liberal democratic values, it would clash with many of the significant practices in Israeli life, whether it has to do with the relationship between religion and state. You know, Israel basically is a society that lives under uh, religious influence over public and private life, not something commensurate with a democracy. And eventually they'd have to realize that the most undemocratic practices have to do with occupation, not only uh, implemented against Palestinians, but that have reverberations on Israeli citizens as well, which is maybe complicated, but I could go into it, uh, you know, in a longer conversation, or people could just read the book. Um, read the book. But what's interesting is that Israelis did not really put those together. I cannot claim, I, I don't agree with colleagues, you know, who say, oh, the, the anti-occupation block was growing over the course of 2023. I did not see that in surveys. And frankly, I didn't really feel it in the demonstrations myself. But I think, I think Israelis still had a long way to go, but at least they were opening up big questions about democracy during 2023. Now, with the war, 
it's interesting because there are some competing trends, right? Certainly the initial plan for the judicial assault of this particular government has been mostly put on hold and it was kind of on hold anyway, although they did pass the major legislation. I think we have a story up on the site right now as we record about how underneath the surface they're still exactly. pushing ahead with it. So that's it, yeah. what I was going to say. That, so on the one hand, it looks like the initial judicial overhaul was on hold. And of course, the Supreme Court, which which rejected uh, the law that would have limited the, the court's ability to use the reasonability basis. Uh, but at the same time, that also means people's attention is diverted and the government is able to move ahead in tiny incremental ways of a technique that has served Israel so well over the years in advancing policies that it knows essentially conflict with democracy and possibly with you know international law, such as occupation-related practices. And by the same logic, if you want to undermine the Israeli judiciary and you're worried about a huge sweeping social backlash, it's very convenient that there's a war going on that makes people focused on survival and be able to do things like interfere in judicial appointments or try to stymie the work of the Judicial Appointment Committee because you don't like the identity of the justices or you haven't been able to uh, re-engineer the Judicial Appointment Committee as our justice minister wanted to. So that those things are also true. And then, of course, there is the problem of wartime uh, democratic values you know, generally being uh, constrained. Right. We have a communications minister who is hell bent on not allowing certain international media to be able to cover this war, um, who would like, if he could, to re-engineer the entire Israeli media scene so that there would be less critical media and more support for essentially, you know, government loyalist media and you know, I think that in many ways, of course, we see the police cracking have have cracked down on demonstrations or have broken up. Certainly, they tried to prevent anti-war demonstrations in Arab localities because they did not want anybody to be expressing solidarity with, you know, civilians in Gaza being killed, for example. And they accused just all of them of essentially supporting Hamas. That has changed somewhat over time, but not much. And, you know, there's been a draconian kind of, you know, I think from the perspective of Arab citizens, they feel essentially persecuted for even expressing publicly on Facebook or something, you know, some sort of solidarity with the people of Gaza. And so they feel cowed into silence. I think that they feel, you know, very severe democratic rollback if they ever felt that Israel was democratic. Um, and of course, political dissenters and, you know, who, among the Jewish population as well, left wingers, uh, people who are critical of the war. So all of, you know, war is not good for democratic values in general. It might provide cover for this government to continue to advance some of the initial judicial overhaul policies. And even at the same time as it seems to have paused the original program that the government wanted to implement, which was already kind of, uh, you know, struggling because of the major social backlash. But I do think it's interesting that the democracy movement mobilized civil society to an incredible extent and nobody knew the war is coming, but the fact that that civil society had been so organized, so right. mobilized, so kind of ready to do more with its newfound, you know, uh, people power, that it was able to snap into place, certainly to help other civilians uh, in the early terrible days of the war when people were killed and, and displaced and, you know, uh, the, and the state was totally unprepared. Um, and now I think it's already been shifting roles to try to mount uh, a campaign that is more critical, openly critical of the government. And we're seeing those protests on the street um, most Saturday nights for the last number of weeks. And so I guess it was fortuitous for the, the portions of Israeli civil society that are committed to democracy, um, at least as they understand democracy now, fortuitous for them that they had that infrastructure already mobilized and in place from 
from the, all the work in 2023 to be able to make the case that this government not only represents a threat to democracy uh, by trying to overhaul the judiciary, but but also represents a threat to the state itself for its incompetent leadership, its failures on October 7th, and what people increasingly see as uncertain aims of the war. So all of those things, I think, are behind the protests that we're increasingly seeing on the street that are not just far-left anti-war protests and not just the very, very cautious uh, protests in support of hostage release, but these active anti-government protests that are leveraging the energy that we saw on the street throughout 2023. So not to pin you down or anything, but I think I'll ask you as a final question, is what you've seen unfold over the four months, does that make you feel more optimistic about the future of Israeli democracy or more pessimistic? I know what listeners and you probably want me to say. I, I, <laughs> people always ask me to find some sort of hope. and I, Say you know, what you think, Dahlia. What I think is that ever since October 7th, I cannot create things that aren't there. It's a very pessimistic time. It's very hard to see a way out. The destruction is so vast. And when I say the destruction, I mean the destruction for all of us, because I see Israelis and Palestinians as completely intertwined in terms of our fates are interdependent. We're not the same people, but our fates affect one another. And when I say people's lives have been destroyed, I mean the people whose lives were destroyed, uh, you know, on October 7th, you know, Israeli civilians who were killed and traumatized and displaced, the vast Palestinian destruction of, both, of you know, civilian lives in Gaza, uh, not to mention the infrastructure, complete ruination, um, and, of course, everybody who was suffering from living under conflict before October 7th. You know, Palestinians were living under essentially a closure in Gaza for 16 years. Israelis in the South were living under rocket fire, and all of us had to deal with regular escalations and, and occasional attacks on, our, on civilians on both sides, with Israel being, of course, the far more dominant power politically and militarily and economically. And so um, it's, it was, put it this way, it wasn't a good time before October 7th. It was a very, very demoralizing time. I mean, if you look at survey research, uh, the, the joint Israeli-Palestinian surveys that I've conducted, the last one Khalil Shikaki and I conducted was in December 2022, after the elections, before the establishment of the government. And we were gobsmacked at how negative views were towards one another. We had never seen it so bad. And we'd never seen attitudes towards, for example, a two-state solution so low since the 1990s. And so that was bef all before, you know, long before October 7th. And so it's basically just gotten worse. Having said that, there's only one thing that has kept me personally, Dahlia Shanlin, a little bit, you know, um, anchored, maybe even overstating the case, but at least a reason to feel like a human being. And that is the fact that before October 7th, I had what I consider, what I, I feel privileged to have had very strong relations with um, Palestinian and Israeli and Israeli Jewish and Israeli Palestinian um, friends, colleagues, equals, or people who I consider way above me and I admire them, um, who are my partners and I work with them and we work together, we think together, we have, we, we enjoy, you know, we were friends and colleagues and the partnerships are about envisioning a different future. Those are the people I work with in a land for all the movement advancing or advocating for two states in a, a partnership confederated model, um, organizations like Standing Together, which, you know, in the past I, I respected them, but I may have thought they were, you know, a little bit kind of feel good. But now I think they are an absolute critical lifeline to the reality that there is no way out of this nightmare unless we start truly internalizing, A, that we are equals, B, that we are interdependent. There, You know, the we, when I talk about we who are suffering or who have hope or whatever, I mean we, Israelis and Palestinians, we are inseparable. We're not the same, but we're inseparable. 
we will grasp onto any bit of optimism we can hold on to at the moment and uh, and to close out the podcast with Dahlia. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your incredible, vast expertise in so many political arenas. Thank you for excellent questions and for inviting me onto the show. And that wraps things up for the Haaretz podcast. Thanks to my guest, Dr. Dahlia Shenlin, and to my editor and producer, Nara Malkin. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer, and until next week, Shalom from Tel Aviv.